This is Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Later, we'll hear the extraordinary story of the murder of a young boy in France more than 30 years ago and why it is back in the news. But first, to the US, where an election today, Tuesday, for a vacant seat in the House of Representatives is being billed as an early referendum on the presidency of Donald Trump. Republicans are hoping to avoid a major upset today as Democrats push hard to claim a congressional seat that has been Republican for 38 years. The The seat is for the 6th Congressional District of Atlanta, Georgia. In a first-round vote in April, a relatively unknown 30-year-old candidate came within a whisker of winning the seat for the Democrats. His name is John Ossoff. The community is standing up because we recognize this is the first chance in the country to demonstrate that we believe America can only become more prosperous, more secure and stronger if we stay true to our core values and that those values are threatened. Ossoff is now in a two-horse race for the seat in a runoff against Republican candidate Karen Handel and opinion polls give him a slight lead going into today's election. For more on this, I'm joined by our Washington correspondent, Suzanne Lynch. Suzanne, more money has been spent on this election campaign than any other in the history of the House of Representatives. Why are the stakes in this race considered to be so high? Yes, this election on Tuesday has been closely watched by politicians on both sides of the aisle here in the US because it's really been seen as a barometer of public feeling ahead of next year's midterm elections in the United States. And particularly on what's now been called the Trump effect Is President Trump becoming a liability, essentially, for the Republican Party when they go to the polls in their own districts? Now, this election, there was an initial runoff last month and um, the Democratic candidate, John Ossoff, came within a hair's breadth, really, of winning an overall majority. He got 48 percent, 50 percent would have taken him over the line but he didn't quite get there. And then it's gone to this runoff uh, on the on Tuesday. Um, and But the significance of this is that this district in Atlanta, Georgia, is very much a traditional Republican area. It was held by the former House Speaker Newt Gin- Gin- Gingrich for 20 years. Um, it was seen as a shoe-in for Republicans. So there was widespread shock that this relative political unknown, John Ossoff, a 30-year-old former staffer at Capitol Hill and filmmaker, that he came so close to winning this the first time around. Um, and as you say, it's been a safe Republican seat for a very long time, um, but it, they, it didn't vote overwhelmingly for Donald Trump in the in the U.S. presidential election in, in November. Isn't that right? Why, why, why was that in particular? Do you think? Yeah, this is quite interesting. So it, it's quite a unique um, area of Atlanta, Georgia. So again, analysts have warned about you know, deducing too much from this particular district. Um, But it's a very wealthy suburb of Atlanta. Um, Kind of young professionals, people in the 30s and 40s have moved out to this area. And so even though they have voted Republican in the presidential election last November, um, Trump only won the district by 1.5 percentage points, uh, whereas Mitt Romney, for example, in 2012, had won it by more than 20 20 percentage points. And so there is obviously um, a Trump problem, if you like, in this area. Um, so in that sense, a, is it typical or is it not? This is going to be the big question people are asking about this election, because I think um, what we're going to see throughout the next 12 months, really, as we gear up to the midterm elections in November 2018, is Republican congressmen who are going to be fighting for their seats next November. They're going to be closely watching this to say, hang on, is support for President Trump helping me or hindering me? And if it is seen to hinder voters, as it as it looks like it has done so far in Georgia in this election, um, well, then, you know, we may see a, a broader shift in the whole Republican Party support for Donald Trump. And um, so in that sense, it's very, very interesting. But in saying that, as I say, it's a specific kind of district 
there were four special elections, essentially what we call by-elections in America this year. There's actually another one today in, on Tuesday as well um, in South Carolina. And then that is expected to go to the Republican candidate there. And Democrats, even though they've come close, have also lost special elections in Montana and Kansas. So really the pressure is on here on Democrats to get a victory in this election. A lot of money has gone into this. A lot of support from outside the state has gone into this. So Democrats need a win. Um, if they don't, yes, they can talk all they like about how, how far they've come, how they nearly got there. But really, I think there is a lot of expectation here that this is their best chance to secure a victory in these by-elections this year. And tell us something more about the Democratic candidate, John Ossoff, and the, the kind of um, campaign he has run. It's quite interesting. He's a 30-year-old former um, congressional staffer who worked in Capitol Hill here in Washington for years and is now a filmmaker. Um, but interestingly, he, he um, he's cast himself as quite a centrist uh, prospect. He spoke about um, growing up in a house with guns, for example, um, and trying to appeal to the kind of middle ground Republican figure as well. Uh, Republicans have tried to paint him as a an ally of Nancy Pelosi, the Democratic uh, House Minority Leader. Um, again, that he's got a lot of money from these big Democratic uh, figures and support from these big Democratic figures in Washington. And they can handle his rival. She has been at pains to say that he does not live in the district. He lives just a few miles outside and um, how they need to vote for somebody local. And how these are the people who are going to, she is the only person who can listen to their concerns. And really this idea that the rest of the country has now got interested in this election, that that's not fair on the voters of, of uh, Georgia. So we've seen this kind of uh, debate happening. But I mean, like a lot of Democratic candidates, Ossoff has, has tread very, very safe ground, really. And a lot of support really is coming by virtue of his anti-Trump uh, message. Uh, but the, the broader question here about all Democrats, they need more than that. If they're going to win back the House next year, they need to have their own strategy. And really, we've seen very little from John Ossoff in terms of, you know, what he's going to bring to the role, you know, how he sees his role as congressman, etc. Again, as I say, it's very much the anti-Trump vote that he's trying to tap into. But are we seeing evidence in this election of, of um, the Trump factor, if you like, energising the Democratic base? Are people coming out, you know, um, because of Donald Trump, Democratic supporters? Is there that kind of enthusiasm there? Uh, or yeah, not? I think. Yeah, I think this is a, a big question for the Democrats. Um, in the early days after President Trump's election, we saw a lot of public displays, uh, a protest of support for Democrats. For example, the Women's March, etc. Um, congressmen reported, you know, a lot of interest from their constituents in in their in the Democratic Party. But there's a fear now that maybe, you know, how to keep that momentum up. This may fade away as the months go by. Um, there is an indication so far on this election today that there's already been an increase in the number of people voting in this election uh, since the first round of the election last month. And the it's difficult to tell, but the indications are that that may, might benefit John Ossoff and that uh, we've seen younger people uh, come out to vote this time around. Very similar to what we saw in the British election, obviously, and other elections, That if you can tap into that younger vote. So that might be something that Democrats will try and um, tap into. But I think, think, as I say there, there is still a kind of a lack of message, a lack of unity, in a sense, among the Democratic Party about what is their strategy, really, um, for beyond an anti-Trump message for trying to win back the House. As I say, this is seen as their best chance. I think there will be very disappointed Democrats in the country if he is not to get over the line tonight. And uh, at the moment, it's really neck and neck between the two candidates. John Ossoff is slightly ahead, um, but really it's all to play for. There's been a lot of early voting as well. And... 
there is a sense that maybe Karen Handel benefited from that shooting last week, which left a Republican congressman uh, severely injured in hospital. Yeah, and in fact, there was even, um, and we'll, we'll come again in a moment maybe to the, the campaign spending and the type of ads that have been put out there by supporters of Trump. But now you mentioned that shooting. The, the, there was an attempt by supporters of Karen Handel to capitalise on that to John Ossoff's detriment, if you like. Isn't that right? Yes, there was an ad running here during the or running in the state during the week a TV ad um, that showed uh, shots of pictures of these this attack last week that took place in the baseball park just outside DC, and blame it on left wing extremists. Now the man who was who eventually died of gunshot wounds, but the suspect in this attack was previously a Bernie Sanders supporter was very much an anti-Trump uh, man. Uh, police have said that from, from their social media records he left, etc. And Bernie Sanders himself has come out and denounced this violence. But we have seen, not so subtly really over the last week, um, a lot of people on the right in the US, a lot of analysts, a lot of media commentators, um, blaming this attack on, 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 this, on this left-wing movement that the anti-Trump rhetoric has gone too far and this is what it leads to, etc. So this particular ad you're referencing and made that that link even more uh, more obvious and said, um, you know, use this to say, do not vote for Ossoff. This is what, you know, left wing extremism can do and showed a shot of the of this injured Republican congressman. Now, both candidates denounced this ad. Karen Handel denounced it. She said she had nothing to do with it. It was a it's a separate um pack a separate Republican support group that ran this ad in saying that she did not call for it to be taken down from TV. Um, but I do think it's an indication of how kind of desperate uh, measures have become in the run up to this very, very tight election. And um, Suzanne, there's probably an, an, another um, indication or another example of how desperate, I suppose, some people on the Republican side have become. Um, we'll hear in, in, in another campaign ad, which was, this one was, um, and we're going to have a listen to this in a moment. This is an ad funded by a pro-Trump super PAC or a fundraising committee known as the Great America Alliance. It may seem out of season, but all of a sudden, Democratic politicians have started coming around again. We normally only see them every other November, swarming around and making promises to get our vote. But nothing ever changes for us, does it? Here's what President Barack Obama had to say about it. Plantation politics. Black people in the worst jobs, the worst housing, police brutality rampant. But when the so-called black committeemen came around election time, we'd all line up and vote the straight Democratic ticket. Sell our souls for a Christmas turkey. Let's not sell out for another Christmas turkey. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Suzanne, in that advertisement, we hear um, the former president, Barack Obama, apparently suggesting that black people voting Democrat is akin to selling their souls for a Christmas turkey. We heard him there say it in his own voice. I mean, did he did he really say that? Well, actually, um, that quote comes from his memoir, Dreams from My Father, that was written in 1995. And it actually refers to a passage in which Barack Obama describes as talking to a barber when he was getting his hair cut in Chicago in the 1980s um, and how this man had told him um, had, had told him these words. So they are, in fact, not Barack Obama's words. It's an anecdote that's used in his book and it was delivered by somebody else in, in this anecdote he tells. So there's been a lot of controversy around this ad. It's obviously misrepresenting what Barack Obama said. The point of the ad is try to encourage the black vote to get out and vote for Republicans. Um, obviously, in this district, as a lot of areas in Georgia and in the East Coast of the United States, you know, the Democrats have traditionally tapped into the black vote. Um, but I think this is another indication of how far 
far how bitter and how nasty this debate um, and this battle is becoming in the hours left ahead of voting. Um, now, there's been spokespeople for this pack have come out and defended it, saying they wanted to be creative, that it was a new way of, of doing uh, advertisements. Uh, senior advisors to Obama in the previous administration have come out and really called them out on this, saying it's deceptive, it's misleading, and essentially it's fake news again that it's not representing really the words of Barack Obama. Uh, but as I say, it is indication of how tightly how tightly run this election is. And as you mentioned at the beginning there, the kind of money that's gone into this from both sides, really the more money has been pouring in, particularly from the Democratic side. So as I say, these Democratic donors now want results. So there'll be a lot of unhappy Democrats if they don't get this over the line tonight in Georgia and if John Ossoff doesn't win that seat. And just finally, Suzanne, to come back again to where we, where we came in, I mentioned at the start that the race is being portrayed as a referendum on Donald Trump's presidency, but it's probably fair to say that's a Democratic narrative more than a Republican one. And Karen Handel, the Republican candidate, insists this election is not about Donald Trump. It's about who's the best person to represent mm. this particular seat. Is that, do you think, um, an indication of, of things to come, midterm elections ahead next year, where many Republican candidates in particularly in urban areas maybe essentially trying to distance themselves from Donald Trump. Yeah, it, it's a very interesting point. Karen Handel, very well known to the 55-year-old former state Secretary of State in Georgia, very, very well known, very good local campaigner, and she's been stressing her local roots. And as we know, in Ireland, as any other country in the world, all politics is local. So the big question is, will voters, when it comes to election day, vote for their local representative, or will the spectre of Donald Trump uh, discourage them from voting Republican? And we, we don't know the answer to this yet, but it is the crucial uh, question facing Republicans. Now, interestingly, um, Karen Andel has played this quite well. Um, she's welcomed Donald Trump's support, but at the same time, he hasn't been visibly campaigning with her. Um, he did take to Twitter uh, on Monday evening to try and rally voters to vote for Karen Handel and criticise John Ossoff. He also did that during the first round of the elections last month. Um, so I think, you know, Republicans like Karen Handel are going to be trying to strike this very, very delicate balance about keeping in with Trump to some extent, but trying to keep him out of the, the picture when they're uh, campaigning on the ground. Um, but I do think what's worrying about this is the fact that Democrats made such gains in this, whether they win or not. I mean, I think it's it's cause for worry for Republicans that even in a, such a, a highly traditionally Republican area as this district in Atlanta, that um, a Democrat can come so close to winning a seat. I think that is a worry for Republicans, whatever way this vote goes. OK, well, it's a very tight race and we'll have the result very soon. Uh, Suzanne, thanks for that. Thanks. Talk to you later. Next to France and the fascinating story of Lafayette Gregory, a saga of family feuding, secrets and jealousy that began with the murder of a child in northeast France more than three decades ago. C'est dans cette rivière qu'on a retrouvé le corps du petit Grégory, 4 ans, pieds et mains liés. La petite église du village accueille rarement autant de monde. After several twists and turns over the years, there have been new developments in the story in recent days. Lara Marlowe is on the line from Paris. Lara, this story essentially begins on October 16, 1984, with the discovery of a four-year-old boy's body in a river near his home in the village of La Ponge sur Vallon. Who was the boy and what were the circumstances in which he was found? Uh, Gregory Villemain, as you said, Chris, was four years old. His parents were both factory workers. Uh, his mother was ironing inside the house while he was playing out front when someone, and we're still not certain who, kidnapped him about five in the afternoon. Uh, and about four hours later, one of his uncles received a telephone call, and the, the caller said, I got revenge, I got the boss's son, and I put him in the river. 
And that's when they found little Gregory's body in the river. He had ropes around his hands and feet and a rope around his neck, and his little knit cap had been pulled down over his eyes. Now, um, we did say the story essentially began on that date, but there were some there was some trouble. The family did experience some trouble before the murder of the little boy. Isn't that right? Correct. Uh, there were all sorts of secrets in this family, uh, not the least of which was the the birth of an eldest son to the grandparents of the little boy, who was not his father's son. Uh, and it was the, the grandfather first got the letters. Um, there were a lot of letters received by little Gregory's parents as well, Jean-Marie and Christine, mainly prompted by jealousy towards Jean-Marie because Jean-Marie had been pr- promoted to foreman in a factory and he and his wife had moved out of the housing project where they lived. They bought a, a fancy bungalow and they had two cars and they had a leather sofa and uh, uh, many of, of the people in the family who already were very divided uh, amongst themselves were very jealous of the success of Gregory's parents. And when you say anonymous letters were received, what what kind of was the content of those letters? Uh, For example, um, several of them referred to Jean-Marie Villemin as the boss and said things like, uh, you'll be sorry. Um, The the one that was actually, the the phone call on the night uh, said, referred to the boss's son, but then there was a letter received immediately after the child was killed that said, I hope you will die of grief, the boss. It's not your money that will bring back your son. This is my vengeance, and then an obscene word. Uh, So this was the tone, very very typical of the tone of these letters. Okay, so now we have a a little boy who's dead, um, who has been murdered, and we have evidence of of some kind of grudge or um, um, some antagonism towards the the boy's father in particular. So um, what then happened next after his funeral? Where did the finger of suspicion initially point? About three weeks after the funeral, uh, a 15-year-old girl called Muriel Boll denounced her uncle, Bernard Laroche, who was a first cousin of the little boy's father. She said that that her her, her uncle, Bernard Laroche, had killed little Gregory. Thereupon, he was arrested, uh, but then the 15-year-old girl retracted her her testimony. Bernard was released, but he was still charged. At this point, then, the boy's father, Jean-Marie, did he accept that his cousin wasn't responsible? Um, was Bernard uh, Laroche in the clear at this stage? No, not at all. At the end of March 1985, so uh, less than six months after the murder, Jean-Marie Villemain, the, the, the foreman in the factory, killed his first cousin, Bernard Laroche. Uh, we shot him dead. And he then was put in prison. Uh, he spent uh, four years in preventive detention, um, be, and where he was convicted of, of the murder of Bernard Laroche. Now, the gendarmes, a lot of them still think that Bernard Laroche is the one who killed little Gregory. But what's new in the case is we think that he had accomplices. But in the meantime, the, so in he the was, meantime yeah, he there's was, more. He was uh, essentially at this point, well, we'll say cleared, if you like, but then, then he was shot dead. But the investigation continued, and then there was a kind of sensational development. We're still in 1985 now, I think, aren't we? But there was a sensational development next. That's right. This was in July of 1985. Um, Christine Villemin, the little boy's mother, 
uh, was said to be the author of the anonymous letters, the, 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 the Corbeau or the Crow, and she was then charged with the murder of her own son and put in preventive detention for several days. Now, it was interesting that the, the family was so divided that uh, Christine Vilman's mo- uh, mother-in-law, Monique, who's now 86 years old, uh, filed a, uh, a complaint as a civil plaintiff against her own daughter-in-law. Monique had helped to raise uh, Bernard, the one who'd been murdered by her son, and she had always thought that it was her, her son and his wife, whom she hated, who had killed their own son. And she actually was found this, this last week to have been the author of other threat letters written uh, several years later. Okay. And um, but Christine uh, Villemann, the, the mother of the little boy, so um, she was arrested and charged. Is that right? And, and was she, did she go Correct. for trial? And was she subsequently convicted of the boy's mur- murder or not? Well, she, she was sent to an assize court uh, in uh, 1986, and then um, that, that was, there was an appeal in 1987. She then was cleared, and the court said that there was a total absence of charges against her. That was in 19—it took, um, took eight years for this whole process to, to go on eight years before she was completely, totally cleared of murdering her own son, during which time she had uh, several children. Okay, so she was cleared then, it's 1993. Um, and what happened in the... In- it was interesting, though, it was quite a cause célèbre. Marguerite Duras, who's a very famous author in France, uh, wrote a sort of Zola-like j'accuse, in which she said that Christine Villemin was sublime. She defended this, this mother who was accused of having murdered her child. There were also a lot of really vicious rumors spread about Christine, about her having you know, had affairs and all sorts of things, uh, all of which were apparently false. Uh, but she, she, she really had a horrific time. After uh, she was cleared, eventually she and her husband moved to the Paris region. They got out of the Vosges where they had suffered so much. And um, so that was then 1993 when she was cleared. And uh, what happened in the intervening years? Before we come to the de- developments of recent days, were there, was the case, um, did it stay open in the meantime? Well, it, it's, don't forget that Jean-Marie Villemin had murdered uh, Bernard Laroche before his wife's trial. And he, was, he served four years in prison. So it was at the end of 1993... So about 10 months after his wife was cleared, that he was freed from prison. Uh, and he, he, he was actually convicted to five years, but he served four years in prison. So presumably all of this, these, this stifling um, rivalry and hatred and, and everything was, was continuing during this time. Certainly the phone calls from the Corbeau, uh, anonymous phone calls continued, and also threat letters. And one of the threat letters was sent to the judge who was investigating the case. Uh, he was threatened with death. And the anonymous letter writer also s- said that it was uh, Jean-Marie and Christine Villemin who killed little Gregory. That letter, um, allegedly, according to the prosecutor now and according to um, handwriting experts, was written by Monique Villemin, the little boy's grandmother. 
And um, so tell me then, is Monique uh, Vilman, is she one of the people who have been arrested in, in recent days? Or what, no, because she's 86 years old. She and her husband, husband are both 86 years old, and they are considered too old and frail uh, to be arrested and, and, and put in prison. But they were questioned for two days um, re- very recently. And so who else, what, what did happen in the last few days then? Who has been arrested and, and, and questioned? Well, there were three arrests made. Um, a, a, an aunt of uh, Gregory, or great aunt, called Jeanette Villemin. Uh, she was released the same day. Uh, the two who are still in prison are Jacqueline Jacob and Marcel Jacob, who would have been the great aunt and great uncle of little Gregory. Now, they have been uh, placed formally under investigation for kidnapping, holding him in captivity, which led to his death. A judge will decide this afternoon whether or not they should be released from prison or they've been sleeping in prison since uh, Friday night, since um, I think that would be the 17th, yes, since the 17th of June they've been in prison. Um, Marcel Jacob was the, or is, the brother of Monique Villemin, the grandmother. And he, like the other people who've been suspects in, in, in this whole sordid case are from what is called the, the La Roche clan or the La Roche wing of the Villemain family. He was very, very close to um, Bernard La Roche, the one who was, uh, who was um, charged and who was murdered by Jean-Marie. Uh, his wife, Jacqueline, was found to have written uh, one of the threat letters back in 1983 before this, the murder of uh, little Gregory. Okay. So is it likely, Lara, then, that anybody will ever be charged with the actual murder of, of Gregory at this stage? Um, or is, is that clear? It, it looks like... Well, the, the prosecutor said very clearly that it was not one person. Until now, we had one person charged at a time. First Bernard Laroche was charged, then Christine Villemin was charged. What the prosecutor is saying was that it was a, it was a group effort. Uh, the implication from these two arrests and these two aging people who've been placed uh, under investigation is that they were accomplices of Bernard Laroche, who was very, very close to them. He was their, 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 their cousin, and um, they, to, to the point that Marcel for, and Bernard, for example, more or less grew up together because Bernard was orphaned. His mother died right after he was born. The two men both had very similar mustaches, these big handlebar mustaches, to the point that people mistook one for the other. Uh, so the, the, the sort of working theory, if you like, is that Jacqueline and Marcel, who are now both 72 years old, Bernard uh, Laroche to kidnap and, and kill this little boy. But that has not been proven. Uh, this is all supposition. It's, it's what the prosecutor's uh, exposés on the case so far seem to indicate. Indeed, and we're conscious of that, of course, that nobody has been convicted um, at this point. But maybe after more than three decades, we're closer to solving the mystery of the, um, the death of, of little Gregory. Lara, thanks for that story. That's it for this week. For more on these stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thank you for listening.